Hi, I'm Matt Janssen, and you're listening to the BRFCS podcast. The New York Rovers would like to welcome you to the BRFCS.com podcast, covering the 2019-2020 Blackburn Rovers Championship campaign, hosted by Ian Herbert and joined by some very special guests. Don't forget to check out the forum here at BRFCS.com to continue the discussion. Oh, so, wouldn't you know it, we've bumped into Tony Mowbray once again. Tony, how'd you take your brew, mate? Yeah, it's basic really, tea, milk, two sugars, in the two-guy mug. The two, what, two, what, what mug? Well, I've got a two-guy mug, lad. It was on my desk when I arrived, and it's been the only mug that I'll drink tea out ever since at the football club. Where, where did you get your hands on that? Well, where do you think? You know, the terrace store, of course. Plus, as manager of Blackburn Rovers Football Club, working here at Brock Hall on the training ground, I've managed to secure all the podcast listeners an exclusive discount at checkout. Oh, that's that's brilliant. What, what What's the code, then? you just got to enter BRFCS at checkout. Oh, that, that is fantastic, Tony. Thank you very much. But remember, only Tony drinks out of the two-guy mug. You'll have to get yourselves a sheer one. Oh, well, no complaints there. Welcome to this edition of the BRFCS.com podcast. We are interviewing Rich Sharp in this episode and we talk to him about the January transfer window, try to understand why so little happened and speculate on what that might mean for the rest of the season. We also hear from Bill Arthur in Canada and he reflects on the 1994-1995 season. Not sure why he picked that season, to be honest, but best give them a listen, see if anything exciting happened. It's my great pleasure to have as a guest on this episode the Rovers reporter from Lancashire Telegraph. He's no stranger to the BRFC as part and he's always welcome. And at the end of the transfer window, who better to come in and explain the merits of all the players that we've signed and the rationale behind all the players that we've let go. It's Rich Sharp. Rich, how are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Great to have you on board, sir. So, uh, January, uh, frenetic activity, typically, usually, at that time of year. But this year for Rovers, not a jot, not a sausage. Yeah, I I was actually thinking, I think this is my fourth January window. Um, And from thinking back, I think the first one was they signed uh, Lucas Zhao late on the 30th of January on one night, and then Emnes early on deadline day, and then Ben Marshall went. So that wasn't a great deal uh, deal of happening on that window. The League One, they brought in Payne and, and Armstrong, but nothing else. And then last year was Chapman, uh, and nothing else. And then this year, they went a great deal. So I've, uh, I've not come to expect much from uh, from January for Rovers, uh, to be honest. No, I think that, that's probably very sensible, uh, given it seems, it seems to be being the law of diminishing returns. But... Um, I, I put a thought experiment to you. Just before Christmas, the Venkis London accounts were out and they showed yet another uh, whopping loss. 
and the spectre of financial fair play looms large over, I think, almost all championship clubs, perhaps with the exception of those recently relegated. Are these two events in any way linked? It's difficult to, to contradict it, isn't it, when, with how it's played out. You'd, you'd never know, really. The talk was that if, if they found somebody that they liked, they'd be, they'd be able to to make moves for, for permanent signings. Um, I know the lad from Portsmouth, Ronan Curtis, they were particularly keen on and have watched a couple of times. I don't think you'd do that if, if there wasn't money available. Um, ditto the um, Campbell Josviak, the, the, the Polish lad as well. So, But what once numbers start getting to... Um, to certain numbers we've certainly seen with Mowbray in the past that um, he's not willing to go beyond what um, what he thinks a player's worth obviously I know people are going to come back with the Brereton and Gallagher things but yes. <laughs> they, that, that, is all, that is always the, the comeback to anything but um, he obviously thought they were numbers that, that were achievable and there was some you know f- future benefit that Rovers could get out of that but I think once it got to certain numbers and there was only certain players they were going to move for. It just slowly reduces the pool of um, of players that you're in for. And I, th- I think in the end, it just really fizzled out, I think is the best way for to put it, which I, I was kind of surprised that I did think they would they would make some some January moves. I remember speaking, asking the manager when Greg Cunningham got injured and um, saying would a left-back be on his, his thinking. And even before, I think Greg would have probably been Cardiff would have probably been keen to recall him anyway, so yeah. they'd have known that going into a um, couple of months before that anyway. So, and the manager said then there were areas to address in January. Things obviously flipped on the head with the injuries, and I think probably caught them on the hop just a little. And um, yeah, things just just fizzled out to um, to nothing. Based on your knowledge, Rich, to what extent do you think? It's Tony Mowbray that that drives the agenda, and it's Tony Mowbray that says that's too much, or I, I, yeah, that's a, that's an appropriate fee. From seeing it first first hand when I've been away with them, I think Mark Venus really does take a you know a big a big say in the in the negotiations and, and involved in that. I, I don't think Mowbray said himself until that that's not his strength. Yeah. And I don't think I don't think that's particularly something he enjoys doing. Is dealing with agents, dealing with chief executives. Mowbray is very much a football orientated man yeah um he he likes to get involved when they've got permission to speak to players and then he tries to sell them the the vision and the dream of what he's looking to do and i think from speaking to players who've signed in the past i think that that is something he's particularly good at i think if rovers can get somebody in that position and put mowbray in front of them i think they've always got got half decent chance but We've seen it before, where he said that that money has gone unspent. We hear it virtually every window that you know money was available for transfers, and they just never seem to get through. It it, it is a cutthroat business, and uh, it's like I said, it's not something the manager particularly tries to get too much involved in. They are building you know the recruitment team in the background um, to filter players down. I think he'll make it, he's aware of players and positions that he wants and, and characteristics and attributes and they'll be fed into him and then I think that's where, where he starts to get involved but right. um, I, I do think he's more you know the, the player orientated side they've tried to boost the recruitment department with the the money that they've invested in that um, there's a lot of people down at Brockle watching matches all the time so they're just trying to build that pool of players really to, to um, you know that are really who's out there and, and available but um Money talks, and, and once that gets involved, you're not the only show in town, and, and then things just start unravelling from there, really. I can't help but think also there was another factor that influenced our budget in January, and the rumours didn't go away. 
Bradley Dack to West Brom. Complete fiction on the one end of the spectrum, or no, there was something in it and uh, it would have happened at the other end. Where, where, whereabouts is the reality, I guess. The, well, the talk from the West Brom end is, is they'd never be able to get to the figures in January that Rovers would have wanted for, for Bradley Dack. So they'd have had to have been some incredible you know, way of working a negotiation, I think. Dak's a difficult one in that he was t- he turned 26 on New Year's Eve. He did interviews with us just before, I think when he scored just at Reading. Um, that was a 250 career appearances and he was saying he's coming into a big year of his of his career. And I think Dak is probably in a similar boat to, we you know, what Jared Bowen found himself in where he's a standout player in the championship. It's where do you go? You know who who buys you basically yeah, for the yeah. for the money that Rovers would have wanted. Dak was obviously you know he's, he's further on than Bowen. He's probably three three four years older. I didn't hear anything. I've not been told that anything was in that. Uh, the West Brom end is, suggested the same. Obviously things things do get talked about. I just couldn't see Dak going in a January window. I think if Rovers were ever going to let Bradley Dak go, it'd have to be in the summer. Um, and I think they were probably gearing themselves up for. You know, the fact he'd not signed this contract, which had been on the table for quite a while now. Yeah. Um, that they were probably all gearing for come and give us six months, Brad, and then we'll, we'll assess things in the summer. Uh, Mowbray's, I think he's, he's on board with, with what um, Bradley Dack's thinking and he knows that he wants to play in the Premier League. He's not earning great money at Rovers. He's got one shot at it, really, Dak. I think he's, you know, with the age he's coming to, he's got one one good move in him, really. Yeah. Um, so all the stars that have to align. West Brom were probably in a similar position. You know, he, he got his championship dream uh, that he wanted with Rovers getting promoted. Whether you know the West Brom thing could be the same for the Premier League, but I just think the money that need to be involved, I, I just couldn't see it personally. It's a, it's a different kettle of fish though. Come this time next year, I guess. Rovers have an option though. I think I, I saw yes. your tweet. Yeah, um, they do. So. The worry was that he'd come back next. Um, what we're going to talk October, October yeah. yeah, play a few for the twenty threes and be back towards the back end of the year. It would be the hope, and obviously on the on the contract he's got at the minute, that would suggest he's got six months left. But uh, yeah, I'm sure there is a, a twelve month option in Rovers' favour, which I'm, I'm sure they will take up just to give him that level of security. And then it's just what level he comes back at. Really, it'd be. A, crying shame if he's not the Bradley Bradley Dack that we've enjoyed for a couple of seasons that he's been here but um, like I say you don't want to put too much pressure on the lad but from from seeing him about Brock Hall and from speaking to people who were involved in his his rehabilitation uh, he seems to be really giving it his all which is really good to to hear so hopefully he uh, he comes back fit and firing but um, it's not it's not a nice thing to have in these conversations you know about selling Bradley Dack well the lad's um, you know, spending quite nine, nine, ten months, which <laughs> is why well I was soon, uh, Brad. We need a check uh, from West Brom, exactly. Yes, yeah. Which is why I didn't really want to get involved too much in you know the contract thing at the time. I know it's obviously a talking point, but yeah, I'm assured that they've they've got an option, which I'm sure in time they uh, they will take up. I can only think back, of course, the the similar injury with Alan Shearer, and mm. he was. I think he was he was still the same player, if not quite that blistering pace. I think the injury that really did for him was the one at Newcastle, the ankle injury. But Bradley Dack has he's never relied on pace. I think he's always been about skill and trickery and positional sense. Yeah, I guess the, the worry a bit more with Dak is his his body shape and would you know twelve months on the sidelines would would that would that affect him? But um, 
Uh, he's certainly putting in putting in the hard yards. There's um, obviously Roves have been through the, this injury. Obviously they've had Dominic Samuel and Greg Cunningham as well. I know Greg's gone back now, but you know he's a couple couple of months yeah. behind. So they, they've had that learning and um, and recent experience with with such an injury. So you're hoping that will will benefit Dak in uh, in being able to come back um, and be the player that he was. Absolutely, I'm sure every uh, every Rovers fan will wish him well. Mm. Naturally enough, is is an important cog in our in our side. Yeah, and the, the, I was just just on the West the, the timing thing, you know, with at that point what they won, uh, they'd won five in six going into the Wigan game. It was the best, you know, the best spell that they'd had in the Championship, really. Um, and I just think would they have entertained selling Bradley that going into January? Because whatever happens, if if they don't. You know, kick on in these last games. I think the festive period is going to be looked at when you went into it with the five wins in six after Bristol City. They had those nine days off to, to yeah. get some rest. Wigan at home, Birmingham at home, Huddersfield away to finish the year. To take two points from them is is the real disappointment. I know everyone talks about the you know, the Charlton, the Luton home games, but yeah, that festive period really killed them with Dax injury because then he needed to change the whole way you were playing, and you've got like one training session to walk through some stuff so that was that was particularly uh, particularly disappointing really to, to lose him at, at such a crucial time yeah I think it was disappointing also the, the momentum was there uh, yeah and you yeah you were starting to think well you know this, this we've had some really good results haven't we? I mean the Bristol City performance especially I think stood out and even hardened cynics like me were thinking oh crikey you know <laughs> yeah actually playing well here but as you say it, well the injury crisis has, has gone on as well and it? it's not just been Bradley Dack so um what the the one inbound such that it was in January was the return of the club captain um how big a surprise was that do you think massive I think he'd got until twelve o'clock on the day that he, um, he, you know, he was recalled to to make the decision. So he'd he'd clearly spent some time some time weighing it up, and I think Rovers had gone into January expecting Wigan to, you know, probably firm up their form up their interest, yeah. and then they've ended up not only of the um, they've not taken that up, he's been recalled, and um, they go from there. So. I find it difficult because I don't want to criticise Charlie because he's been such a great servant to, to Rovers and, and uh, done so well over his time. But the, the manager made it quite clear when he left that it wasn't in the plans. And since he's come back, it's, um, it's it still on. looks like the same. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, well, that that was obviously uh, something they weren't budgeting for or expecting. That that will have made a difference. I think that the manager's admitted as much. The difficult thing for me is with the, with the contract as well. I asked the manager about it, and he said it was a stick to beat him with. But Mulgrew signed the new contract in November 2018. He's been loaned out to a you know championship rival, so and he's still now got got 18 months left on his deal. So that that does strike you as you know quite a long a long deal to hand to somebody who was 32 at the time, I think. But yeah, like I said, it it served the club so well, and. I, is a difficult one when you're offering, you know, lengths of contract to, to these players. But um, yeah, he'll be back now for for the rest of the season. I, I'm not really sure how, you know, unless unless there's significant injuries that that he will play again this season. We'll uh, we'll wait and see. Absolutely, I think there'll have to be a couple at least to open open the door because he, yeah, he, yeah, he's not the future, is he? In that respect, no, uh, no, exactly. The, the fact that you've got Mobu who's willing to let him go. Well, you know they've not lost anybody in that area. Touchwood yet, 
and Lennon's two bookings away from a from a ban, but then you'd expect that Williams would step in and then I still even think that if there was another one that it might even go Niambi to centre half yeah. um before Mulgrew. So yeah, it would be difficult now to to see him get back in. And nobody left. Was the did you get wind of any interest? Smallwood had League One and League Two interest. I think the League One offers didn't weren't satisfactory to Rovers, you know, wage contribution wise. One League Two club who recently changed manager uh, got to a figure that uh, the Rovers were willing to accept, but but Smallwood didn't fancy it. Um, right. Was that on loan, right? Yeah, um, which was a bit of a surprise because he's obviously you know he's under contract for for the rest of the season, so Rovers would have to pay him that figure. You know, until his contract is up. So to him, you know, whatever the other club is paying is isn't you know it's in, yeah. of an irrelevance to yeah. him. Um, but yeah, same last summer as well. Um, he chose to to stay and fight for his place when I think Mowbray, you know, made it clear that the opportunities would be limited. But another and a similar to Mulgrew, another one who's who served the club really well, got got offered a new contract when they got promoted out of League One. I think he's played 10 times since the infamous sending off at Sheffield United. And yeah, we'll just now see out the remainder of his contract at, um, at Rovers. Mm, he, was, he was certainly a stalwart in that uh, in that promotion. He was exactly what was needed at the time. Mm. Yeah, and I, mm. I, I'd put him... Everyone talks about Dak as, as Mowbray's standout signings. I'd stick the two Downings and Smallwood just off the top of my head and certainly being around the top five signings that he's made. But yeah... Chapman and, and Samuel, there wasn't really anything, you know, around for those either. So, two more players will, will be just part of the uh, the first team setup and and see if they can break into um, to the side. Harry, Chapman, like, Harry Chapman's a curious one, though, isn't he? Because I, it's, he's, he was brought brought only on loan by Mowbray, brought back and signed permanently by Mowbray, and then almost immediately given a public chastising. Yeah, uh, the thing obviously Samuel probably falls into into the same boat as well. Rovers, they they've got access to so much data. They they know everything about a player's workload, even in training. They, they film training. They can watch it. So you know nothing gets past anybody. Yeah. Um, so it's how much behind the scenes are you, are you willing to put in? Nyambi's out every day after training, whipping balls in with David Lowe. He'll then go to one of the analysis booths with Damian Johnson and go through his clips. Yeah. Your Bucklers and your ranking Costellos are, are doing similar as are the, the you know quite a few of the first team players have really bought into it as well. Whether you get the impression that that's quite the same for for some of the others I don't know. Um but there's obviously there's a there's a trust element to all of this and um there was interesting Chapman from uh, a Scottish team in the summer and I think Mowbray decided between him and Chapman, that the best thing would be for him to, you know, to stay around. But he's another one who's you know, his career's ticking on now, um, and he's just not really getting the opportunities. I think over the festive period, obviously, we saw him in those three games in a row. I'm pretty certain that if Ranking Costello would have been fit, he'd have got the nod, you know, before him. Yeah, he but- did. He didn't really do anything. I mean, it, yeah, it's unfair, isn't it, coming on as a, as a sub to sort of like judge him just on those. But yeah, exactly. If but that's the only opportunity you're going to exactly, get, yeah, you kind of got to grab it, don't you? I've watched him. I've probably watched more than half of the under twenty threes this season. He's probably played in about half of them. 
he's got that flash that you know those showreel moments that, yeah. that people like it's it's how you're showing enough and for me you're ranking ranking Costello and Buckley are, are ahead of him I know he's obviously got plenty of support from the fan base not really seen that is it that desire um to really go that extra mile and and push your name to it to the front of the queue yeah the, the, with with Dak being out as well there was always that kind of part of me really wanted us to, to do the Mike Bassett 442 with Gallagher and Armstrong I still think there there is something there for them as a partnership but they've got mm. they would need service from the wings and of course there's no Craig Conway these days uh, yeah which is something I've spoke to like about with the, the manager at length obviously I said are you looking for a winger and he said yes and then that would obviously affect whether Armstrong was going to be the number nine or if they did they look for a centre forward and Armstrong and stay out wide but yeah Chapman is the only natural, yeah. what you'd call a winger at, at the football club. Moby talks about him playing with inverted wide players. You know, Rothwell in particular coming coming in off the left um, to link with the number ten, and that's the way that they've done it. But yeah, I do still think that the squad is lacking that natural wide player, um, which is where Chapman's name will still get mentioned because he is that option. But um, opportunities are slipping by, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. His, um, time's ticking on now, and he's, he's probably going to could go through the season again with no league start, um, which is uh, which is certainly something. Terrible waste, really, really is. Hmm. So, so in the summer, um, I think we can expect some transfer activity. <laughs> Either that, or we'll struggle to put out eleven players. Yeah. Right? Well, um, I, I wrote down two goalkeepers, a left back, at least one centre half, central midfielder, winger, striker. So, is that? What's that? Eight, something like that, off the top of your head, and they're not just—they're not just squad fillers. They're—they're they're people that you're going to need for um, for your first team yeah. and your starting eleven, really. Um, so hey, it will be will be a big summer. So much for the model of incremental improvement and just sort of uh, exactly. I know, and that's what we've talked about. This, you know, this stability and this growth, and so far we, we have seen that. But it, it, it has come to a point where, obviously, last summer in particular, I know everybody talks about the defenders are coming uh, line that the manager gave. I think they have to improve defensively. I was a big David Ray fan. I was disappointed to see him go. I was particularly disappointed. I know they tried for, for two permanent overseas goalkeepers that didn't happen. Uh, they ended up with a loanee. I think Adarabayo is a is a top six. I think they've got a top six centre half pairing. If they could play Lenehan and Adarabayo with Cunningham at left back and Nyambi at right back, for me that is a defence that would be a you know a vast upgrade on on last season. So yeah, the the only problem being is that. Out of that back four, you'd only got Nyambi and Lenehan as your contracted players, so they just move the problem a further year down uh, down the line, and that's something they're going to have to uh, have to address when it comes to this summer. Mm, I hope that the the quiet January is because they were getting their fingers in pies ready for uh, a busy July. Um, well, that's one thing we've always known with Mowbray is he'll wait for his targets. Um, Gallagher, they had a couple of nibbles at him. Rothwell was going to come in the January before he came in the summer. Amari Bell, they looked at the summer and then got him in the January. Oh, sorry, he was another January sign. I forgot about Bell. <laughs> um, he was along with Payton and Armstrong. So it, it, Mowbray will he will revisit these signings. Oh, sorry, targets. Yeah, But yeah, th- there is a lot of work to do. And you are looking at uh, there, w- there will be gaps appearing in the squad in, um, in the summer. Certainly will. Certainly will. So... 
we've we've touched on it, but one of the the sort of like looming clouds over the championship as a whole, uh, and Rovers especially, I think by their own admission, is FFP. Mm. To what extent has it been mentioned in any contacts or conversations or interviews that, that you've had with any club officials? Rich, how, how worried it, are they? It's it's always it's always in the background, isn't it? It's always this you know this question mark hanging over everybody. I think. Steve Waggett used the phrase around the threshold. So it's certainly something that, you know, they are aware of um, and every decision they make, you know, that could have some impact on that is, um, is certainly something that we they will look at. And it, it is the biggest talking point in the division. Everybody's in the same boat. Uh, I think we saw particularly, you know, in the gen- genuine window, not just Rovers. I know what, Fulham spent some some decent money, but a lot of those, you know, were, were pre-arranged transfers that they just got over the line. So it wasn't really a window where, where teams were throwing great money at it. I know Bristol City obviously brought Naki Wells in and then they got a centre-half from Leicester, who I think Rovers looked at as well. Um, but then they sold Josh Brownhill yeah. as well. So that, for me, is the biggest thing for Rovers. I mean, Bristol City CEO called it player trading. You don't want to you know, you know, don't want to talk about selling players, but I mean, in the time that I've been doing this job, I know Hanley and, Hanley and Duffy went in the summer of that season and since then Robes have sold Marshall, Raya and then they got a bit of money you know for, for Mahoney which really you know for for a championship club looking to looking to grow is it's not the greatest and that's the easy, that's how many years have we spoke about Robes you know selling a player mm. to offset the losses mm. and at the minute that's not something that we've had for for quite a while now the positive being is they've now got a squad of players that has some value. They've invested in the playing squad. They've got lads coming up through the academy who, you know, are going to be sellable assets. But yeah, that that the, that's the the biggest way that Rovers are going to raise any revenue is is to trade and sell players. Um, it's the easiest and the quickest way to do it, and that's that's something that they've not had in uh, in the last few years. Well, they've tried everything else, haven't they? So, you know, Steve Waggett's uh, season ticket campaigns and his uh, exactly. his concourse yeah. offerings, uh, funnily enough, haven't doubled the attendances. As, as one wag put it on our forum, you know, why don't they try getting promoted to the Premier League? That seemed to double the attendances. Yes, yes, it would. I think attendance, I think attendance and ticket was about 25% of the revenue. So that's why he talks so much about it. And that's why, you know, there's, there's such a focus on season ticket sales and you know the, the ticketing offers that's why so much goes into it because it is such a large percentage of Rovers' revenue whereas yeah. you know Premier League clubs can it's probably less than five percent and they can just you know not need to worry about it whereas that is something that Rovers do need to um, they do need to look into because that is, is such a big chunk of, uh, of their income. And when you're competing with some big city clubs as well and their attendances, even if their attendances are only two or three thousand higher than ours, yeah, every fortnight that extra well, income adds up. The last, the last um, interview I did with Steve, Steve Waggett, his, his phrase was, "There is no, there is no financial fair play." And he said, "Blackburn's a mill town in Lancashire. Uh, the revenues just don't compare to these these big city clubs. But you're having to work with the same, you know, the same framework. It's FFP's no different if you." Your Leeds United getting forty thousand, or your Rovers with a home support of what eleven, eleven to twelve thousand most weeks, yeah. plus your away fans. So it is, it is difficult to compete. And Rovers' revenue is probably, imagine around bottom, bottom third. But obviously they're trying to, trying to be a top six club. So it's, it's how you go about bridging that gap. And I take it 
the appetite for challenging the FFP rules doesn't exist at Ewood, or have you got any wind of there being a groundswell of opinion that this needs legal action? Yeah, I think that because so many, is it 11 clubs are in receipt of parachute payments, I think Rovers you know, would quite happily be part of you know, a band to get together and discuss this, but while ever there's so many clubs receiving parachute payments, um, yeah, and you'd need, I think you need two thirds to agree, so that's 18 out of the 24 to agree to change, I, I just can't, I just can't see it. The EFL have made a rod for their own back because Sheffield Wednesday and Derby have both been, both been charged and are in ongoing discussions about what next is their defence is that the EFL have signed off the deals that they've done which if found to be true is just going to open the floodgates for for everybody so I really don't know where this ends I don't see what the what the overall outcome is and everybody's going to be looking at it because they're all going to compare you know to recent case history it's the same in in the court of law, what one thing? Yeah, precedent you know, is set. Exa- and exactly. Everybody follows. Yeah, yeah. And that that is what's going to be happening here. Um, that if they find the defence around it, everybody's going to use the same defence. Or if they they found guilty for one thing, that that's the same thing that they're going to view it as. So, what happens with these cases? I think everybody's just going to be keeping an eye on to to see to see where they go. Really, the um, well, a podcast that's become one of my regulars recently is uh, Kieran Maguire's Price of Football. Mm. And he um, touched on Derby County a couple of weeks back, and I didn't I hadn't appreciated the full extent of their creativity, shall we say? If only they mm. were showing that on the pitch, I suppose Derby fans would argue. <laughs> they uh, not only, of course, is the, the stadium sale at uh, an allegedly inflated price, but also they don't write off the value of their players fully over the length of their contract. So the standard football treatment is if a player is signed for eight million on a four year deal, he's depreciated at two million a year because at the end of it is a Bosman. But Dar- mm. Derby don't do that. They they insist that the player has a value at the end of his contract so they don't have to write off as much so they don't lose as much in the PL. Mm. And so, so not only are Rovers sort of like having to outwit clever opponents on the field we, yeah. need, we need to up our game in the creative accountancy market. So maybe we should uh, we should make a bid for a, a chartered accountant to come in on loan for six months. Oh, having heard that, you know, when KPMG and Deloitte came in for that summer, was that after relegation? Yeah. Uh, some of the figures that were being quoted for how much they were charging, it's uh, you can get half decent centre forward for what uh, <laughs> for what imagine. they for what they were charging. But that it, that is the sad reality in that football is going to become down to. You know, it's going to be based on the discussions between the EFL and, and accountants, really. Yeah. Um, and there's, I mean, there was Wolves a couple of years ago, weren't they, when people kicked up a stink? And obviously, probably Villa again um, last before year. that as well. Got exactly, out of a sticky yeah. situation. And Leicester, I think, Bort, as well. Bort, yeah, Bournemouth as well, I think, got promoted. Yes. And then yeah. it's a bit like, well, who cares now? We've yeah. got, we're in the Premier League. And that that is one of the risks that you take. Do you just go for broke and say, right, we're going to have one big hit at it um, and see what we can do. And I think, I think last year, I think that's what Rovers saw a bit of a possible gap that you know, your likes of Sheffield Wednesday and a couple of the others, you know, were, were falling away from having had a go for a couple of years. That seems to be a bit of a cycle, you know, with clubs. Middlesbrough this year have obviously gone through some transition. They've got you know bringing through quite a lot of young players, whereas you know last year they've got some uh, your Aidan Flint and you know your more experienced Championship. Um, 
championship players. So it is very cyclical. And I think Rovers were just hoping that, you know, incremental progression could get them towards yeah. that top six um, yeah. to, to try and replace some of the established, uh, more established clubs in the division. What do you think the, the change in CEO at the EFL will bring to the party? That That is, you'd hope that there will be some, you know, clear idea and everybody can sit down and thrash out because it's far too complicated. I think that's, for a fan to try and understand it, you know, if a fan wants to be able to look at a football league table and see the team who's got promoted have done it through fair means by being the best team in the division. They don't want to think about stadium sales or anything. Yes. They just want it, they just want it in black and white as this is the league table. And I think there needs to be some simplification. But the problem is that there's so much money involved and the prize at stake is the Premier League that so many people are going to try and chance their arm to do it that while the prize of the Premier League is so vast compared to the Championship, I, I really don't know. Because you've got the EFL now are working with such different... So you've got the Macclesfield situation, you've got South End, and then at the opposite end you've got Derby and their stadium sale for, for God knows how many millions. So, you know, to try and come to... to try and take on all all yeah. this... Is is because it's it's three very different leagues within you know one organisation. The championship's going to at the end be have you know be, there'll be more more teams in uh, in EFL discussions over over different things than um, than, than any other. Um, but you just hope for some clarity. I think that is the only thing that that fans want is um, is things to be fair and there just to be some clarity that what they're watching on the pitch and is reflected in the league table is actually you know, done by fair means. Well, we see you know, there, there are hawks on the forum that will come on and sort of say Venki should just throw the checkbook at it. And I think the, the, the biggest counsel I would offer against that is the EFL now seem to be realising that, that that's the game. That's the game mm. that's in town and points deductions I think yeah. are coming back to the fore again. So Birmingham were the first to be hit under the profitability and sustainability rules. Derby are being threatened with it. Sheffield Wednesday are being threatened with it. So I, I don't. I think if that ship ever was in port, it's sailed mm. now. And as you say, it's back to the academy products again for us to, to build a squad. I think Venkis would. I think, you know, if you gave him the opportunity to, to throw some money at it, they quite happily would. I think it is FFP that's stopping him. I do get that impression from from speaking to people at the club that you know if they if they were able to to throw more money at it then then they would. It's just making sure that you're um, you're compliant, really. Yeah, it's a tricky situation and it's a crazy crazy division. I know uh, mm. Andy Holt is is one of the more vocal chairman, but he's absolutely right. It's to 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 have a chance of even just trading and playing week in week out if you're not prepared to put fifteen million quid a year in. Yeah. Yeah, and that, forget it. The, the thing that stands out for me is you know the waste of turnover ratio of what was it, hundred and fifty four percent in the VLL. <laughs> and I mean, I wrote this in, in in the piece that I did on the window. I mean, Rovers aren't pleading poverty, but I'm looking around at their wage bill and I'm thinking these players, you know, if if they played for other teams in this division, would be on double would be on double the money. And it, it's the pool that you're reducing your signings to. So you look at they've got Palmer and Adarabayo from top six Premier League clubs in the last two windows, they're on more than double what Rovers' top earner is. And I don't know how many games Casey Palmer ended up playing for Chelsea before they sold it, but it certainly won't be double figures. And then you look at the signed Armstrong and, and Gallagher again, who had to take cuts to sign for Rovers. And the Mowbray factor was obviously massive in that. 
which is why I think they're going down the uh, you know down the overseas route really, yeah. uh, and just trying to to look for that. I know they had two goalkeepers last summer that, that they were keen on. There was Adam Marr, the Dutch lad. There's a German playmaker from Bundesliga too that they thought they'd got over the line with. But the thing with the overseas, you need. I think they're just waiting for you know that one to drop, and I think then other other players will will follow suit. I know obviously they went for for Holt, but he'd obviously got an affinity with the um, with the English game, and I think that's why Rovers are looking into that market because it's the wages really that are, you know the barrier to a lot of these yeah. deals from really. Um, they probably could you know work a way to to get to the transfer fees. It is just the wages that um, that is stopping them. And like you say, if you're already 154 percent ways to turnover ratio you, you know you can't got much headroom exactly you can't you can't do much more with it so uh, it's very boring talking about wages because it's you know it's the easiest way when somebody says richard we're going to sign him and it's like well how are we going to pay him yeah which we been out <laughs> exactly the, the atsu thing the suggestion was they were they were going pretty heavy for him his salary again was 30 something thousand um and i think in the end it just got down to a you know he wanted to stay um which is why rovers pulled the plug on that one really and why we ended up with a, a deadline day that was uh was over before it had really begun uneventful to put it mildly mm. i suppose there's just one other constraint as well that we might have to start factoring in work permits it's uh, not my. Uh, <laughs> so it's another, another imponderable alongside FFP. Well, to, exactly. You'd like stop. to think if if Rovers are investing all this in overseas recruitment <laughs> and then got done by something like this, who eighteen months in or whatever. But uh, yeah, post Brexit, no, you imagine? I think I think that's something another shock wave that's probably likely to to wash through the English oh, game it, at some point. But, uh, it will be, but then. As ever, you'd like to, you'd probably think that money will talk, won't you? If there's a uh, yeah. commodity worth yeah. being traded for fifty million, there might be uh, might be a few unique rules set of skills, to, uh, exactly. sign here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, it's going to be an interesting summer. I hope. <laughs> Otherwise, it's going to be a, a worrying season next uh, next season. Uh, no, I know, I know there's, there's the academy investment as well. That I think it's about three million a year that that the owners put into that. So this is where you turn around and you say, well, we've invested in. In the academy, what have you, what have you got coming coming through? Yeah. So, it, I think there will certainly be opportunities for for players in the second half of the season. You just hope the season doesn't just well, fizzle out. Yeah, you and, don't want another one like last year, do you? That, that's exactly. Fair. And you know, I mean, we've no Rovers have seen very good at going on good winning runs, followed by you know not so great runs. It is trying to find that consistency in it in a completely bonkers division. But you'd like to think there's still a few more uh, you know, stories to be written in this in this season and we're not just batting time out really. Yeah. Um yeah. I think the, obviously they've got the home games coming up against teams, you know, that are above them in the table are going to be massive, I think, because that's the only way they're going to catch some of these teams is you know, when they come to play them. Yeah, there comes is, a point is, where is, you've is, got to prove it on the field, I guess. Exactly, is, is by beating them. And um, obviously Bristol City have got to come to Ewood, obviously Fulham as well. And there's, there's, I think, six of the, the teams above them have still got to come to Ewood. So you'd like to think with the record they've got, they can uh, they can keep that going. But there's just only so many injuries that, that you can take. I know that, again, sounds like excuses, but Dak, Evans, Cunningham... Uh, will be certain. It will yeah. be certain starters in in everybody's team. Rothwell, you could probably add to that. Holtby is another one as well. Who um, it's half you know, a team, isn't it? 
Exactly, exactly. And I know everybody says they, they need replacing, but these players still need paying. It's not like Corey Evans goes down injured and you can suddenly <laughs> statutory sick pay. Exactly. Yes. You need. It's just like oh well, here's here's some money for a central midfielder that you'd not bargain for. Yeah. Um, and I, I know obviously it does sound like excuses, but the Rovers they've got they've got key players. Everybody's got key players, and yeah, they've certainly lost uh, lost some of the big ones. Certainly have. Well, Rich, thank you so much once again for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, it's always great chatting, and it's always great to get that insight. Uh, we keep our fingers crossed that you've still got some fascinating results to report on between the end of the season, uh, unlike the fascinating re- results that uh, took place this time last year. But thank you so much once again, Rich. I really appreciate it. No worries at all. If you've listened to any of my previous podcast contributions, you will know that most of the memories I have talked about have been from the 60s, 70s and 80s. But on this occasion, I'm going to talk about the more recent past, the 1994-95 season. I hear some of you saying that's not recent past, it's ancient history. But 25 years to me is the recent past. And what do you mean you haven't heard me before? Where have you been Anyway, this memory dump was inspired by the Rovers Revolution book by John Dwerden, which was in my Christmas stocking. Ian Herbert shares some of his memories in the book, so not to be outdone, treat this podcast as an extra audio chapter to the book. I was living in Kent at the time, so opportunities to get to live matches were relatively few, but I did get to quite a few during the season. The rest I was watching on Sky or listening on Radio 5, or waiting interminably for Teletext to refresh. First stop was the Charity Shield, but let's forget about that. It's one of those games It's not important, unless you win it of course, when it is important, but we didn't, and in fact it was notable only for the debut of Tony Gale. So I'm going to gloss over that and get to the season proper. It was the end of September before I saw my first league game, which was an easy 3-1 win at Ewood against Aston Villa, with two goals for Shearer and one for Sutton, before Ehiog scored a late consolation goal for Villa. I think that was the first time I'd been in the Blackburn end since the redevelopment, and it was nice to be seated somewhere in the region that I used to stand with my dad and my brother, towards the back and midway between the goal and the riverside. Bit different though to the days when we met for a drink beforehand in the aqueduct and strolled into the ground at three o'clock. Although I worked in London, I used to do a lot of work in Shipley and quite often had a lot of flexibility in fixing the dates of my visits. That was often done with an eye on the fixture list for midweek matches. It didn't take me long to get to Ewood after a day working in Shipley. That's how I managed to get to two League Cup matches in October and November against Coventry and Liverpool. The Coventry game was won with two goals from Shearer, but no such joy against Liverpool as an Ian Rush hat-trick sent us out of the cup, losing 3-1. It was a disappointing night, but three days later I was at Selhurst Park. Those words, Selhurst Park, still bring back terrible memories, but no such problem this time as Rovers demolished Wimbledon 3-0, and I was glad all over. Two games in three days was a rare treat for me. I also remember lots of Rovers fans at that game shouting loads of money to the Wimbledon fans, the phrase made popular by Harry Enfield. There was also a Rovers fanzine that went by that name at that time. Selhurst Park and Charlton were the two nearest grounds to where I lived, 
and on New Year's Eve I was back at Selhurst Park for a scrappy 1-0 win over Crystal Palace, Tim Sherwood scoring the only goal, and I remember him picking up the ball from the net and staggering over to the supporters with it. Top of the league after that, and two wins at Selhurst Park in December. Maybe Selhurst Park wasn't so bad after all. January was a disappointing month, apart from Cantona's antics at Selhurst Park, which was hugely encouraging for us Rovers fans. You can see now that my bad memories of Selhurst Park are being gradually erased. We had the huge disappointment of losing 1-0 at Old Trafford, despite what appeared to be a perfectly good equaliser from Tim Sherwood. I never did like Paul Durkin, the referee. And talking of short referees, here's an interesting QI fact that short referees hand out more yellow cards. Anyway, I digress. It was about this time that Rovers were starting to get a bad press in some quarters about their style of play, and I was particularly incensed with an article by Simon Barnes of the Times. He talked about Rovers winning ugly, and said that their style of play was just to whack the ball to Shearer and Sutton. He also talked about the lack of entertainment, and that football writers wanted to see Rovers' quotes brought low. He finished with a dig at Dalgleish and his sneering banality. No Twitter or forums in which to respond and redress such an unbalanced article. Back in the day, the Times carried sports letters midweek, so I wrote to the sports editor, rebutting Barnes's article. Imagine my delight the next week when I picked up my paper and found my letter had been published. I referred to the entertainment value of Rovers, who had at that point scored 49 goals in 22 matches. And in addition to the numerous fine strikes from the SAS, the great goals scored during the season by Paul Warhurst and Graham Lasseau, amongst others. I also suggested that the great football writer Hugh McIlvanny was more accurate in his description of Dalgleish as, quotes, droll and laconic, rather than banal. In the letter I made reference to Rovers stopping United winning another title, when I got to work that day, I found that a colleague had seen the letter and pinned it to the door of the office next to mine, the door of a Manchester United supporter. I must say, I got on very well with Nigel and we had a lot of discussions about football that year, uh, but I was really glad that we came out on top. Of course, if this had happened in the Twitterverse, I would probably have had dozens of responses to a tweet and people threatening to come and get me. There was no anonymity as the Times published my home address. I did get a reaction to my letter though. Two letters sent to me at home. One from a Spurs supporter who suggested I should go and watch Wimbledon as they were a more attractive side than Rovers. Yes, you heard that right. The crazy gang was a better team, he said. I checked the league table. They finished 33 points behind us with a goal difference of minus 17 to our plus 41. I think that makes the point. The second letter was from a man in the Midlands who had been supporting Rovers since 1936 and congratulated me on my letter. He said he had tried many times to get a letter published in the Times about Rovers, but without any success. Anyway, back to the matches. Another business trip to Shipley allowed me to get to the home game against Wimbledon, which we won 2-1, but by the time we played QPR at the beginning of April, the nerves were getting a bit frazzled after one-goal wins against Chelsea and Everton. We were into the chapter in the, in the Rovers Revolution book entitled The Wobbly Stage. It was another nervy night at Loftus Road, especially after an early booking for Colin Hendry. I think it was as early as the first minute. And I don't remember much else except Chris Sutton grabbing the winner. 
Little did we know then that from the remaining six games we would only pick up seven points. The match against Crystal Palace which we won wasn't on TV, so it was one of those nights listening on the radio and desperately hanging on after Palace got a goal back after we had been 2-0 up. That was Kevin Gallagher's comeback match when he was again injured and carried off. At the time I was one of the few people at work who was trialling the internet, and when I got to work I actually found a post on a forum the next day from someone whose mother knew someone who was a nurse at the infirmary and said that Kevin had broken his leg. That wasn't what I was supposed to be trialling the internet for, news of Rovers, but it was probably my first instance of social media about the team. My final live match of the season was at West Ham and what a disappointment that was as we went down 2-0. It was a full-blooded, helter-skelter kind of game and I watched it again recently. We played poorly and gave away two soft goals. We were, though, rather unlucky to be be denied an equaliser at 1-0 when Sutton was judged to have fouled Miklosko and a breakaway second goal with five minutes left did for us. But we didn't deserve any better that day. It was a great atmosphere at Upton Park that day as West Ham needed the points to help them stay up. And then when I watched it again, I was reminded how competitive that game was. There were three bookings for West Ham and two for Rovers. But if that game was played in that way today, I'm sure there would have been a couple of red cards. However, despite some more than robust tackles, the reaction to the tackles was excellent. No rolling around, the players just got up and got on with it. The following day, Manchester United were at Coventry. Normally I would have watched that on TV, hoping that Coventry would win, but I was away on business and spent the night in a travel lodge listening to commentary on the radio with poor reception and the commentary dropping out at times. Alas, United got the winner with about 10 minutes to go. You all know what happened next, so I don't need to go there. I watched nervously in front of the TV as we played Newcastle in the Flowers bottle game. Then that final Sunday, when I forgave West Ham and Miklosko for beating us a few weeks earlier. We didn't do a Devon lock as Fergie had suggested, but boy were we close to it. That always seems to be the Rovers' way, make us sweat. It would have been nice to win the title at a stroll, but hey, it wouldn't have been half as exciting, would it? There we have it, another episode, and thanks once again to Rich Sharp for his time and his insight into Rovers. Thanks to Bill for another one of his fantastic contributions, as he says, 1994-95 feels like yesterday to some of us, scarily 25 years ago in May, of course. And in our next episode, let's trail this now, we have an interview with former Rovers left-back Tommy Spur, and he'll be talking about growing up in Leeds playing football in Sheffield, playing football for Sheffield, Doncaster, Rovers of course, what it was like to play alongside Tom Kearney and Jordan Rhodes, and playing for Gary Bowyer amongst many other topics. Well worth a listen. So until then, we'll say goodbye. Goodbye.